0: Welcome to Concordia Journal Currents, Preaching Matthew. This will be a roundtable discussion on preaching the Gospel of Matthew for series A of the three-year lectionary. My name is David Schmidt. I teach homiletics here at Concordia Seminary. I also hold the Greg H. Bennett Chair in Homiletics and Literature. And joining me in this conversation will be uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs. He is a professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary. He also is the author of the two-volume commentary from CPH on Matthew. And we also have Dr. Ron Rall, a former seminary in Papua New Guinea, who earned his demon in homiletics at Concordia Seminary and serves as pastor of Timothy Lutheran Church in St. Louis. Our goal in uh, talking with one another is simply to think about the larger picture of the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we'll be studying this entire year in uh, preaching and how we might preach from it. So uh, to start with, I was reading through a... uh, review of the uh, Roman Catholic lectionary, which is the lectionary from which ours comes, and as they were talking about Year A and how they structured it, they said that one of the portraits of Jesus they wanted to give from the Gospel of Matthew was Jesus as a teacher. And so they intentionally focused upon the uh, five large teaching discourses in Matthew. Mm And I think you'll notice that as you look at the uh, lectionary readings that there um, I think the majority of the readings are the teachings of Jesus. And I was wondering if there's something that we might miss <laughs> about the Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus, if that's the only way we, we look at that.
1: Um, uh, well, let me just say it this way, Jesus teaches more in Matthew than any of the other Gospels. If, if you do a scientific study like I did, which is, one time I took Renee's red letter Bible and a ruler
0: <laughs> and I measured, you know, how many
1: inches of red. I mean, there's far and away more teaching than in Luke or in John. Of course, not as much, nearly in, in Mark, which has more action.
0: So, in one sense, it's right to think of exactly. Jesus as a there's lots a and lots of teaching, and
1: yet, as uh, one uh, one scholar said, uh, uh, Matthew's portrait is not his goal is not to present Jesus as a talking head. Okay, okay. so that, like all of the gospels, uh, it. It can be strongly argued that the Gospels have a goal. It's a little obvious, but it, if it goes without being said, then you didn't say it. In Matthew, Jesus moves toward the goal of cross and resurrection. So it's a, it's a narrative, it's a historical account, a story. The speeches of Jesus are really important, and you can show how they integrate to the story and relate to what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. The parables discourse, which we'll talk about later, probably is the easiest example of this. But um, if you only emphasize Jesus as teacher, then you not only run the risk of some uh, sort of doctrinal imbalance, but you don't actually do justice to the Gospel of Matthew itself. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the discourses are key, they're important, they're, much of the material is unique, but they serve the purposes of the narrative that drives from genealogy, conception in the womb of Mary the Virgin all the way to Good Friday, Easter, and the Great Commission.
0: We know that this year we're going to look forward to working with a lot of the teaching of Jesus. A lot, right. Um, but maybe it might be helpful for us then to think about uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the larger story that he tells, mm-hmm. what are some of the themes mm-hmm. that flow throughout there, and then we can think about how might we integrate these sections of teaching into that larger story. I, mm-hmm. is that...
1: One way at least to think about Matthew is as a three-part story. The first part uh, runs through uh, chapters 1, 2, 3 and into 4, verse 16, where remarkably in this gospel where Jesus teaches so much publicly, he doesn't say one word of public teaching. But it's at 4.17 where Matthew writes, from then Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the reign of heaven is at hand. So all those first four chapters is preparatory, it reveals to us who Jesus is, Mm -hmm. certainly anticipates what he's going to do, right? But so. It's like get ready, get set, here's Jesus.
0: I don't know if this is true about Matthew and Gospels, but I do know that in in literature sometimes the first word a character says is quite important to the primacy effect as it's called.
1: Exactly, yeah. And this and this theme of the reign of God or the reign of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, you know, is as in Mark and Luke, you know, the dominant theme. If you understand what the reign of God is then you will understand the ministry of Jesus. Well, uh-huh. Jesus
2: Jesus has spoken in the temptation, but it wasn't a public kind of, it wasn't an aspect of his public ministry. But right. so this is the first public address, isn't right. it? That's Repent.
0: And then he's picking up on John. You're kind of vacillating. At some point you say kingdom of heaven. Sometimes you say reign of heaven, reign of God. Right. And I was wondering, what do you think parishioners think when they hear kingdom of heaven? in our country, we don't have kings. Right. And people right. who'd like to be kings probably, but we don't have right. kings, right? right? But I mean, what, what does that mean? To me, it's kind of a nice, pious phrase. It's I don't know what you... Well,
2: it probably is. And, and, you know, it carries some geographical kind of connotations because most people, if they think kingdom, they think boundaries, right. you know, a certain extent of land or something. And that pro- that's, that's misleading, of course. And I think you've, in your commentary, have tried to to stress that the real significance here is the reign of God, and that's okay. probably something we need to help people understand. It's, right. it's an opportunity in our preaching.
1: Yeah, as, as Andrew Bartelt likes to say, in Hebrew, meleks spend their time malaking, the cognate noun and verb, right? And in Greek, basileuses spend their time basileiwawing. <laughs> but in English, kings don't spend their time kinging. King. Exactly, see. So, so Ron is quite right, to, and in fact, I preached at our home church last Sunday, and, and it was this Matthew 4 text: "Repent for the kingdom of heaven." So I actually spent a little time, uh, you know, explaining, just teaching. Right. Say this is about action, and so the theme for the sermon was actually the king is here, right. and then an, an additional phrase. But, but yeah, God has showed up in the world. That's the message. I mean, it was just really a dramatic message. God just showed up in the world in Jesus. And he's about to do kingly stuff. Yeah, so in a sense, if you've got that in Matthew, you've got the whole thing. And it goes towards a goal. Okay,
0: we'll see. Well, I, I'm sorry. I interrupted. Yeah, you no, no, this is very
1: important. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, then kind of a big middle section where you have Jesus' ministering in Israel. It goes pretty swimmingly at first, not much opposition. And then, w- beginning with the question of John the Baptizer in 11, questions about Jesus' identity, opposition rises, you know, until you get to Caesarea of Philip. You know, then the father reveals to Peter, reveals to Peter who Jesus is. And then at 1621, Matthew repeats this phrase from 417. From then on, Jesus began. Okay. First passion prediction, see? So, okay, what is the reign of God gonna look like? What, toward what goal is the present reign of God and Jesus heading? And the answer is it's heading toward a cross. And from then on, really, passion predictions, conflict in Jerusalem, end times discourse, I mean, it, it, the conflict really drives toward Good Friday and then Jesus's vindication on Easter. So kind of simple three part. And then the, the, the teaching narratives or the teaching discourses fit into that flow. Mm-hmm. So if you keep that in mind, it's actually very helpful. Where, where are we now mm-hmm. in this ministry that is, that is God's in breaking and yet can be resisted? I mean, you can actually resist the reign of God. I mean, this, is, this in and of itself is unexpected.
0: And who are the people who do the resisting?
1: Uh, they're the ones who refuse to accept the identity of Jesus. Yeah, who refuse to confess him as Christ, Son of God, true Son of David, right? Mm-hmm. The unexpected people get it. Magi, children, babies.
0: We commonly assume Matthew written to a Jewish yeah, audience. right is that perhaps overstated or, I mean, what is the role of the Gentiles? uh? Matthew's concerned that they capture this vision too, that that the
2: kingdom is bigger than Israel. Mm -hmm. And so there are hints all the way along, especially starting with the genealogy, that this is not just, because it's going to become clear in, in Matthew 28, all nations are included in God's plan, but they've always been in God's plan. But the Jews often forgot that, just as we often forget that, you know, today. And so all along, Matthew is giving hints that Jesus' concern is much bigger when he goes into the Syrophoenician area, you know, or the the, the Gadarenes, you know. So there are opportunities for people to see Jesus cares about
0: a much bigger circle than just Israel. Yeah, with that Syrophoenician one, isn't that with the Canaanite woman, is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. And yes. isn't it, it's like Jesus withdrew, Yeah. isn't that right? right. So, so is that kind of in that middle part where you're talking about where he started with Israel and then he's withdrawing because resistance is growing, or, or what
1: is? I can't remember, it's four, five, six times, you know, Jesus withdraws, right? Okay. Um, Joseph withdraws when, and goes and settles in Nazareth when he hears that Archelaus You know, is ruling in the place of Herod the Great. My guess is that it's the Matthean equivalent of John's, My hour has not yet come. Okay. See, there's conflict. Sometimes it's, you know, like I believe Jesus withdraws in chapter 12 after they want to kill him over the Sabbath controversy. See, Mm -hmm. he withdraws not because he's afraid, but because he'll choose the time when the conflict actually comes to its climax. He's in
2: control of that.
1: Exactly. The Gospel of Matthew is not missional because it ends with the Great Commission. It's sort of missional from the get-go. Uh-huh. The very notion of the reign of God. You know, God breaking in to save. I mean, and then, and then God just, <laughs> he just drags people along with him.
2: Yeah. Well, I always think of the fact that, you know, the genealogy is supposed to talk about bloodlines, you know, but in Jesus' blood, there is Moabite blood and Canaanite blood. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so when he sheds his blood, it's really for all people. So right from the very beginning, we have that.
1: Yeah, no, no, I think that's, that's quite
2: right. Because that's a deliberate insertion. That's not the kind of thing you would normally see in a genealogy. No,
1: no, you might expect the matriarchs, you know, like yeah. Sarah and Rebecca and, yeah. and people like that. But and not these prostitutes. Yeah, it's an odd, it's kind of a motley crew, if you
0: will. <laughs> so we've got the, the kingdom of God, the reign of God. Yes. And the major opposition to it, we've got people who are opposing it. I assume there's the kingdoms of this world.
1: Yeah, and Satan is in the background, right?
0: Okay, what is the role of uh, kind of the satanic, would you even call it a kingdom? Or is it, uh, what type of a force does Satan have in in the gospel?
1: It's a little more muted than in like Luke or John. Okay. Um, The exorcisms, Mm -hmm. you know, are obviously... um, There and you know in chapter 12, again it's a controversy over who Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? He casts out a demon, and then the people say, uh, in a a grammatical nuance that the the versions don't always catch, they ask a question expecting the answer no. Mm -hmm. They say, "This isn't the Son of David, is it?" See, so identity, and then they say, "Well, he casts out demons by Beelzebul." Jesus, one of his eventual responses is, look, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the reign of God has come upon you. So yeah, there is this sort of more cosmic conflict going on in the background. And, and that too is, is good to remember as we preach. I mean, we're sort of scientifically trained, naturalistic. You know, Ron, your experience in Papua New Guinea
2: People didn't have any doubts there. They didn't
1: have any doubts about the reality of the conflict with Satan. No, That's right.
2: And Paul says, you know, we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. It's, but it's something we have to keep in mind because for most people that's not a reality as far as their daily life is concerned. Exactly.
1: Right. So, but most of the conflict takes place on the, on the human level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's ultimately it's probably God versus Satan. But it's okay. God in Jesus to Israel reaching out to these odd gentiles and yet it's the crowds are neutral but obviously it's as in all the gospels it's the leaders of, of the people of god tragically who who will have nothing ultimately to do
0: right. i think you had said once something about um, in matthew's gospel we watch as as all of the people get stripped away from jesus as right. we move is that
1: especially in the passion narrative you know um, it's very similar to mark of course but uh, This night you will all be caused to stumble. You know, and Matthew gives us this terrible bracketing at the end of 26 and into 27 of the apostasy of Peter and the tragic suicide of Judas. And right in the middle of those two stories, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. Mm. And then finally, of course, at the end, as all fall away, the people don't respond, the leaders reject him, he's condemned by the Roman governor, and then, of course, the cry of dereliction.
2: Even God the Father. Even
1: God the, in that great, greatest of all mysteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, as apparently the German of the hymn runs, not God's son is dead, but Gott selbst ist tot. God himself is dead. Mm-hmm. So, Norman Nagel says that Luther was the first one to come clean on that. <laughs> not to try to make it pretty or just to leave it the incredible paradox that it is, that the Father abandons the Son.
0: So this is the, this is the much larger This picture. is,
1: exactly. See, this is the, this, it's the same story. It's the same Jesus, right? But this is the narrative into which the discourses t- uh, fit. Yeah, that's right.
2: And that's, that's helpful for, you know, thinking about any text that you might lift out of Matthew. Right. say, well, how does this fit into the, the overall movement of
0: the text right. and the opposition and why does jesus say this well that's really helpful why don't we why don't we take a text and, and kind of do that with it and see what yeah, happens sure, i think sure. um let's see i think it's proper nine mm-hmm. matthew eleven twenty five to 30. ron could you uh, read that just sure. and and we can talk a little bit about how people might hear it and then think about what happens when we situate it in this larger
2: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my
0: yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you hear that read on Sunday morning. What do you think is going through people's minds?
2: Our, our attention normally shifts quickly to the, the invitation that's and the promise. That's
0: exactly where I want to go. That's, that's, I know. I mean, that's yeah. such, such
2: great gospel. You just don't want to ignore that. But you know the, 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 what sets that up, the context, is this, prayer that Jesus, you know, I, I thank you that you haven't revealed this to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so here, you know, one of the themes of Matthew comes through. Uh, people are only going to know who Jesus is if it's revealed to them. Right. And just like he says to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, right. but my Father in heaven. So, you know, only those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. So Jesus is in control. He's the king after all and he doesn't permit, you know, that identity to be known to everybody. Right. That's kind of the amazing thing, in a way. You'd think, well, he'd want everybody to know, mm-hmm. but some are just blinded, right. partially by their own blindness, right. but they're hardened in their opposition, and, you know, so that opposition theme kind of creeps in here, but, but you know, God reveals this, or Jesus reveals this to children. Right. Who are children? Well, they're, they're the least of these. They're the ones that, you know, right. Um, the yeah. Father wants no to— No wisdom, no power, no status. Yeah. Right. The right. ones who are poor in spirit.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and isn't it interesting how you have this juxtaposition of uh, nobody gets it till I tell them they can get it. And Jesus then doesn't say, forgive me, come to me, some of you who are laboring and are heavily laden. <laughs> he actually issues this blanket universal invitation. All you. And so, forgive me, Jesus sounds very much like a Lutheran. That is, we, you know, unlike the Reformed on the one side or the Arminians on the other, or the, some aspects of Roman theology, you know, uh, if, if anybody gets it and trusts in Christ, it's because Jesus the Father revealed it, see? Yeah. But does this mean that he only invites and wishes to save some? Absolutely not. God wishes to save everybody. So it's, this, it's actually a
0: wonderfully paradoxical juxtaposition for me, yes. we have this juxtaposition. Yes. I hear the second part of the text. Yes. I really like it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the right. first part of the text yes. sounds to me a lot like John. You know, yes. those Johanning discourses yes. well, where you're kind of like, well, no wonder people didn't get it. I'm right. in you, you're in me. I mean, it's like, so, so <laughs> how, tell me what I would be doing wrong if I just ran with the second part of the text. Yes. And then tell me how I can perhaps kind of hold these two together. Well, it wouldn't
1: be wrong. I yes. mean, as you know, uh, texts are complicated and sometimes you just decide, well, I've only got 22 minutes here if they're generous, you know.
2: And I can preach this text again the next time and I'll but but the problem is we always gravitate toward this. But I think the juxtaposition is an important thing. It's kind of a paradox. As you pointed out, on the one hand, God reveals Himself to whoever He wills in His divine plan and His purpose. It's it's His will, but He invites everyone. He wants everyone to come.
1: See, this is actually a good example of when you, when you locate it in the narrative, how there's a little bit more that comes to light, if I can say it that way. So, in chapter 11, beginning at verse 16, Jesus says, To what shall I compare this generation? See, that's, as you know, it's a key phrase in it. This, mm-hmm. this is the people who are in the process of rejecting Jesus, right? right? They're like children whining in the marketplace. And then he begins to scold the towns in Galilee, because he did his mighty miracles there, and they did not repent. So, okay, what's the thought? Gee, Jesus is not in control here. It's not going well. The opposition is right. Oh, no, no, wait. He's in control, see, because God the Father is the one who reveals the Son, and the Son reveals the Father. So, see, so the first part of the text actually functions in the narrative to assure the reader that, okay, even when it goes really badly, this does not mean that God's not in control. This is just part of his plan.
2: This is also the very reason why he speaks in parables, isn't it? Yeah, 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 right. So, well, that, although so that's that some, complicated you know, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so there's some, some. Again, the king is in control. He okay. he understands his purpose. And his purpose is, you know, unlimited. His his will is is to reach all the nations. Right, right. But he but he knows the opposition is right. there, and he's not going to throw pearls. Before swine.
1: Although that brings up another verse. So yeah, we, we can talk about <laughs>
0: that so, so for me, then, that, that kind of says that in a sense, Jesus is allowing us to overhear his prayer. And overhearing that prayer, we gain a new perspective. Assures me. Right. Exactly. See, yeah, so even yeah. the
1: front part of the text is very function, comforting. Exactly. Right. If yeah. you read it in the context of this rising. Con- so in a congregation where things aren't going bad or in a really tough ministry setting, you're trying to get the gospel out and nobody's responding. What are we doing wrong? Well, I suppose you might be doing something wrong. Nevertheless, look, the Father's still in control even when it's going badly, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what do we do then? Do we pull back? No. Come to me, all you who labor. The cool thing is that what's the next text? Is the Sabbath text. It's the rest. It's the day of rest in which Jesus says, well, by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath. Of course, they hate him for it, see? So, so it, again, when you read it in the narrative movement, it, it just, it kind of, it doesn't soften it, but it, it locates it and it can function. Oh, so, yeah. the text can function in different ways in different sermons and contexts, but, yeah. but again, it, it's, a, it's a nice example, actually, uh, and I learned this from somebody else, that you know, the, the front part of this unit looks back right. at the conflict, and the, front and the back part of the unit looks That's forward into what's happening next. So, so, it's a good example of how, uh, you know, it's called the Johannine Thunderbolt. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, this text is sometimes called the Johannine Thunderbolt <laughs> because it sounds so much it like does, John. It's like, it, <laughs> it comes in from the fourth Gospel right here into Matthew. I think there's a parallel in Luke as well. Yeah. But, uh, but again, when you locate it like that, uh, it can actually function in some very nice ways.
0: Now, there, there aren't many times in the, uh, in the series of readings, I've looked at them, there aren't many times where we have the text just following right one after another in the narrative. We have that with the teachings, but not with the narrative. There is one place where that happens, and it's, a, it's that famous text of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Now, in year B, when you're preaching from Mark, okay. they actually put the confession of the Christ and then the um, misunderstanding of the Christ together so you're preaching both of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. With Matthew you actually have these on two separate Sundays and I was wondering will that change the way we would preach this event or does it change the way we're hearing the event and is Mm -hmm. it would it be better to have the two together or is it better to have them apart like this with Matthew at least? Well, and, and, and of course those texts
2: are they're related, but as you mentioned earlier, that's the beginning of a of a new major section in Matthew where Jesus begins now to teach about
0: his passion explicitly for the first yeah, time. For the first oh, time. Oh, that's, that's that's the turning point. Yeah. That's
1: the turning point in the wow. narrative, right? Wow. But see, the odd thing is that it's kind of a lot of people think, or well, some people think, it might also be in Mark, although it functions a little bit differently. So, so it's interesting. I I think you could go either way, but Ron, you were going to.
2: Well, but, but of course, the, you know, I, th- I think the confession of Peter is kind of a culmination of mm-hmm. what, we're, what we're seeing here. You know, right. Jesus reveals himself the and who he is, and finally it's revealed to Peter. Right. All this time, the disciples have been sort of not sure, you know, who he is, you know, and all of a sudden, Peter can say, you
0: are the Christ. Right. And Jesus' response.
1: Blessed are you, Simon, son yeah. of Jonah.
0: Right. For... For, for this flesh and blood is not revealed this to you All but right. my father in heaven yeah. so that that picks up that whole thing that we're exactly
1: about that. and it's, it's, it's again in the narrative movement it's it, again others have pointed this out i learned it from them jo- the conflict really ramps up in matthew uh, in chapter 11 you know we were talking about that <laughs> text at the end of 11 um, chapter 11 begins with a question are you the coming one or shall we look for another that this little subsection ends at Caesarea of Philip with a question. Who do people say that I am? So it's all about the identity of Jesus. See, you are... Not, and, you know, it, it's not that he's just the Son of God because the disciples in Matthew have confessed that in the boat already mm. in chapter 14. Mm. But that he's the Christ, the Son of God. And at the end, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ.
2: Because, again, he's in control of when exactly. Is and
1: is And I wonder if... Okay, at this point, it's come clean to them that in terms of the reign of God in the world, Jesus is the one whom God has anointed. I mean, they kind of knew it before. He was the son of David, da-da-da-da-da. But, oh, oh, God is going. He has picked this one, anointed this one, and no other. And see, so... At Caesarea Philip, the disciples come to be focused on Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you do that, you actually get later to open keys to the reign of heaven, see? So that, as the text runs. So that might be a way, when you separate the text, as Ron said, they flow together. That might be a way to preach on the exclusivity of Jesus, if you could say it that way, see? And then, of course, comes instant incomprehension, right? as soon as the first passion. But that, that's kind of a separate topic. So well,
2: they, they, they recognize who He is, but they're not willing to concede that that's the way He should go. Ex- they, they, want to, they still want Not to, at all. No, This is not the right way to do this. Right. If you want to be king, you don't go to Jerusalem because you don't, they're going to
1: kill you. You don't do king that way. Yeah, that's not the yeah, way you do no, king. That's right. And
2: again, say, that's, that's always how we approach it. You know, we want to decide how this kingdom should look right. and what right. shape it should take instead of letting <laughs> yeah. the king well, you do. I don't have that problem. But, yeah. <laughs> Good.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So again, they 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 flow right into one another, but
0: but we have them separate. So exactly. so one Sunday we're preaching the confession,
1: exactly. which really
0: wraps up the first divine month.
1: revelation. Jesus, exclusively the anointed one, uh, and then knowing that opens up, you know, for Peter and the church, you know, amazing things. So how key it is then for hold to this confession, to, to this confession, say. That might be a way to do it. Then the next week, uh, the, I like the way you said it, Ron. Uh, and, and how is it that Jesus wants to rule?
0: Right. You know, rule across.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And what are the implications for our lives and ministry? I yeah. mean, mm-hmm. you know, as Jesus says, not only do I carry a cross, but guess what? You do too. I have a big one. You have a little one,
2: but it's still the a cross. Don't matter how big they are. There's only one purpose for a cross, and that's to die. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's the only purpose. You know, I, I think that's important because people often think of the cross as a burden. Right. But I always like to say, no, the cross only has one purpose. That's it's good. for execution. That's very nice. If Jesus yeah. says, take your cross, he means get ready to die. And you need to carry it every day because right. you need to die every day. Exactly. And that's really Lutheran too. Yeah,
1: right, exactly, yeah. That's actually a very nice way to sharpen that. It's not just suffering, is it? No.
2: It's death. It's death. Yeah, right. right. And if you want your life, you have to lose you it. You have
1: to lose <laughs> it. I'm getting nervous now. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> now you're not preaching, you're meddling. <laughs> well,
0: too we've personal, seen, huh? We've seen then the um, kind of the, the larger narrative picture and what happens when you take uh, two selected teachings or yeah. events and put them in that larger story. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that, that we do have is um, we do have long sections of, of teaching that follow sequentially. So, for example, uh, in Epiphany, you're going to have the opportunity to preach from the, almost the whole Sermon on the Mount, just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, if you would choose to do that, preach the Sermon on the Mount. And I was just um, kind of wondering what What your thoughts are about that? A series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount.
1: It's the most quoted portion of the New Testament in the first five centuries of of Christian literature.
0: Really?
1: Sermon on the Mount. Right. That's what one scholar actually says.
2: But as as you've mentioned, you know, I mean, this coming Sunday, um, for us, where we are in in time now, not when everybody watches this, um, is the Beatitudes. And uh, that's really crucial for understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount,
0: too. Right.
1: I like to think of the Beatitudes as the doorway into the Sermon. And to get into the Sermon the way one should, you have to go through the right door. And so there's actually sort of crucial, exegetical, and homiletical implications for just how you're reading the Beatitudes. And there's kind of two camps. One is you see them as virtues. So the Beatitudes function as as imperatives, Mm -hmm. you should be poor in spirit, you should be more.
0: Things we need to work on and cultivate in order to get a blessing from God. Which,
1: understandably, uh, and in historical context, and yet, to be honest, I think wrongly, is the way Luther read them, because he was fighting battles on his day against the the Roman Catholic evangelical councils and the Anabaptists on the other hand. So are they commandments or are they actually blessings? Are they Mm -hmm. gospel pronouncements? And if they're gospel pronouncements, which I think they are, how? I mean, exegetically, you know, just reading the text, how does that work? And there's, there's the dominant way of doing that. There's more than one way, but the dominant way for those who think that the gospel, the, the Beatitudes are gospel proclamations, is as Franzman in uh, Follow Me has this, be- it's a phrase of something like this. especially in the first four Beatitudes, to the poor in spirit, the mourning, the lowly or powerless, meek, Mm -hmm. and the hungry and thirsty. Franzman says, here the the Christ pours messianic fullness into human emptiness, or something like that. So what that means is that poor in spirit is not a virtue, it's a condition, Mm -hmm. which is actually true of everyone, Mm -hmm. except that most people don't realize it. Mm -hmm. I am poor in spirit, that is, I, I don't have what it takes. Mm-hmm. Well, to someone like me, Jesus says, well, you're blessed. And then he tells me why. Because he can fill you. Yeah, because the reign of heaven belongs to you. Mm-hmm. What, I have nothing to offer God? That's right. That's the good news is that he gives everything to people like you.
2: That's why he reveals it to children, right? Because <laughs> they are the ones- Who also have nothing to offer. That's right, they have nothing to well, offer. it's kind
0: of interesting that, you know, I mean, this is the first major section of teaching and it's not happening in a synagogue right. where people are listening to the Word of God and meditating on it. It's not happening in the temple where people right. are sacrificing for the forgiveness of their sins. Right. It's happening out in the world. He's, you know, the people are following him. He's gathered disciples, right? right? He's called right. the disciples and right. sitting among the disciples, it's kind of naming what is in our world, unfortunately. Yeah. This Right. Mourning, this hungering and thirsting after righteousness, exactly. this powerlessness—that's what's in this world, and right. yet He's naming it and calling it blessed. Right, because and then, of God.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly. As I like, it's all da 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 da. Hati, you know, because I like to say Jesus is in the Hati clause. Yeah. <laughs> See, you—the reign of heaven is yours in Jesus. Uh, you will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You know all these kinds of things. Um, yeah, and it's very formal. I mean, Jesus goes up on the mountain. The disciples approach him. He sat down. He opened his mouth, and he, imperfect indicative, began to teach them. Oh, well, he's going to do a lot of teaching, but this is the first pericope of public teaching. So it's really important to get it right. So I've got to tell you this. I'm teaching the Sermon on the Mount now to a, a women's class on Tuesday night. And we're into some of the hard stuff. Like we talked about anger as murder, lust as adultery, and don't ever, ever divorce, okay, see? And, you know, Jesus is speaking with authority. This is just the way it is. I mean, this is God's will. This is truth, you know? And so we're talking about these things, and, and, uh, and I've been doing this almost every week when you get into this amazing truth, which, nevertheless, because we live in a broken world, so often f- begins to feel like a burden. And, in fact, what we begin to feel, again, is our... Poverty of spirit. So I've been ending every class, you know, and and I'll say, "Okay, now I want you to listen to me," and I'll recite the Beatitudes to them. Say, I'll take them back out and bring them through the door of unparalleled blessing.
0: And that's something you could do in preaching.
1: Exactly. I was actually going to say, if you're going to preach this series, (coughs) you don't forget the doorway. Don't forget. Take every Sunday. Take them back through the doorway and then, uh, And that will provide both the peace that Christians need, but it also provides then the identity mm-hmm. to say, "Oh, yeah, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, but now here's this truth yeah. that he reveals, and, and I can receive this truth as a gift mm-hmm. because that's not what constitutes my relationship with him. Does that make sense?: mm-hmm. Yeah, so no, I would you could actually this the drumming thrumming theme of this entire preaching through the sermon would be blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the
0: reign of heaven as you look at the beatitudes it's um i think it's easy for us in reading them to uh individualize everything because we are talking about lust and anger and so forth but is there a communal sense at all here in, in what Jesus is saying, or is it, is it supposed to be so radically individual? When I think about preaching,
2: and, and you know the audience is made up of a lot of different people with a lot of different issues and problems, and some people may hear that phrase poor in spirit, and some people may hear that phrase hunger and thirst, and some may hear that phrase mourn as their own. Right they don 't all hear the same way, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that when we preach, you know we try to we try to be aware of what 's out there, right. what kind of needs are there, and we try to, to speak to all of them and I think that 's right. what Jesus does here, so when I hear them, you know sometimes I might hear that that one might jump out at me, yeah. poor in spirit i right. 've got nothing, right. and sometimes it might be hungering and thirsting or mourning, right. you know right. that really strikes me as, yeah. as a mm-hmm. identifying my need, mm-hmm. and I think if we think of People as we preach, um, that's that's a helpful thing. Yeah. That there's a community there, but the community feels and hears things in in some
0: individual ways.
1: Yeah. See, and then when it moves, you know, after the beatitudes is the salt and light sayings, mm-hmm. and that's you plural.
0: Right. And so is the last beatitude, right? That blessed are you. Well, it's, so they're second all second yeah, person, yeah. The poor plural. in spirit is
1: the poor ones in spirit, the mourning ones. Right. So they're all it's, plural. It's yes. not him who mourns; it's yeah. those who mourn. Yeah, so, so corporately we're the salt, corporately we're the light, and then corporately we respond. And it's interesting, I mean, there are obviously applications to non-Christians, you know, let your, sight, let your light shine before men, mm-hmm. you know, that's a general statement. But so it's all the talk about the brother, if your brother has some, you have something against your brother, uh, don't judge not lest you be judged. See, that, the first application is actually to the community of the disciples. Mm-hmm. See, that's the first one. And, and I, I think a case can be made that a, a large part of the body, the main body of teaching of the sermon is actually just explicating what does it mean to be salt and light. See? Oh, and here are some of the good deeds that we're to do before men. That is, we don't take revenge. And if someone asks us for our coat, we give him our, you know, tunic as well. See? Uh, and we...
2: Go the second mile.
1: Exactly. We don't so just love the people us. who love us. I guess,
0: I see, it, so I'm, I'm wondering if this is helping us instead of reading these words as only dealing with my vertical relationship with God, right. if these words open up for me what it means to live in the reign of God in the world.
1: And among the people who have been called into that reign. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, and again, it's yeah. missional, see. It, and There it's everyone in their vocation, to use a Lutheran phrase. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the salt, you're the light, in your vocation. You know, it's not, it's just good works. Let your good works be known, you know, so that they see them and glorify the Father in heaven. So it's, it's, um, but it, but it, yeah, I mean, this, this is a great challenge in America. You know, people come together for one hour on Sunday morning and then they go home and they never see each other again.
0: That is one of our, our challenges as a Christian church and community is to, to help people move beyond thinking that the Christian faith is only about me and Jesus. And perhaps, perhaps working with these Beatitudes, there's a way of opening up a, a discovery or a view of that larger picture mm-hmm. of being part of a community of faith. Right. Yeah, and, I, and also, as you said,
2: because, there, because there's a missional sort of underlying tone here, where, where is your community? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yes, there's a community of believers who gather here weekly, but you also have a community out there in your neighborhood mm-hmm. or where you work mm-hmm. or among the people that you associate with, that's a community too, where you can be salt and light and this is how you do that.
1: Isn't that an interesting problem? I mean, for Galilean peasants, this wouldn't have been an issue. No. Right? They never travel, they see the same people Live all in the, the same time. Village all their life. Yeah, I mean, they're there on the mountain then they go back home, but it's the same people all the time, you know. So so it, yeah, I mean, our we're 20 centuries later the and across the oceans and yeah. it's just rapid. it was that way in
2: Papua New Guinea, too? Well, yeah. But here is it's, it's a vastly different world and right. It's moving so fast and, and Right. You know where Facebook becomes your social
0: connection. Yeah, uh, how, how do you do that? Uh, uh, how do you be salt and light there? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you see, the da- for me the danger with that that whole thing is that in that case you are selecting your community. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of control who's in, who's out. I have control of when I interact with them. I can turn it off. Turn it off. And I can control when I want them in and when I want them out. And, and the kingdom of God, the reign of God is a it lot. It becomes the reign of me. Right. Yeah, yeah it yeah. really does. Yeah. yeah. We find God bringing us into contact with people we might not necessarily want in my church or at my job. <laughs> which, mean, which
2: means that in our preaching, we may have to challenge that kind of pre- prevalent thinking that's out there.
1: And then there's all kinds of great truth in the sermon. I mean, you get this beautiful teaching, in chapter six about, you know, I like, I like when Jesus, in, the problem is worry, and there's different ways to deal with the problem of worry. One is to say, it's a sin, repent, don't do it. That'd be fine, that's not what Jesus does. He says, uh, say, look at the birds. And he has this beautiful argument from the lesser to the greater, you know says, now, you're, um, <clears throat> you're uh, more th- uh, worth more, more than, than the they, aren't you? <laughs> and again, it's, it's, I'm happy to point this out. Those are questions all beginning with "oo" or "ook" Uk, or Ukhi, which expect the answer, yes. So the disciples go, uh, yeah, I forgot. Look at the lilies of the field.
0: Uh, oh, so some yeah. of the teaching is kind of an inductive discovery. It's beautifully
1: inductive, yeah. yeah it's yeah. gentle. I imagine Jesus, I mean, I don't know what an ancient Near Eastern sense of humor really looks like, but I imagine him just sort of almost chuckling to himself as he just sort of, yeah, yeah he doesn't yell at you. He's just, okay, now just work with me here. Yeah. You know, just think about this a little bit. Uh, will not God, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, okay, got it. Again, so. Yeah, but if you don't, I mean, if you lose sight of the graciousness with which the Sermon on the Mount begins... Yeah, you can get in serious trouble. Well, and I mean, you're, if you're a Lutheran preacher, you always know that it has to be done in a law and gospel way. Right. And you can go run to Paul if you want to, that's fine. But
2: the gospel's but, right there. But you
1: don't have to, it's yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, the communal aspect of the poor in spirit is that, see, it means that we're all the same. Yeah. Right. See, so you're poor in spirit, so am I. You and I look at the world, the same world, and because... We see not only our poverty of spirit, but everybody else's. We mourn. We hunger and thirst for God to put things right. See, we're, th- we're, th- we're all the same.
0: And the thing, I, I don't know, there's something oddly uh, beautiful about some of them being in the future tense because it it invites you into a life of, uh, of a hopeful expectation. Yeah and it prevents you from kind of looking to say, well, where's my blessing right now? Okay. Right, you know, and exactly yeah, right. yeah. And so, and so that that posture, that posture of trusting in this one, yeah. certain and hopeful, hopeful is best. what we carry with us right. as we go into all of those other teachings, right. which again and again we will find ourselves poor in spirit right. and hungering and thirsting to have this type of you know, life, uh, and yet and yet again being drawn back to this one who is going to give it. But the
2: reign of God is already ours. Right. Yeah, already it's already among yeah, us. It is so, theirs, he's there.
1: and yet all those futures in the middle. Mark Powell in his little book, Loving Jesus, talks about uh, what you could call a more mature faith. He calls it the second naivete. Um, he says it's characterized by a confident sadness. Because you know what? Guess what? Uh, the day is coming when all will be put right, but guess what? It hasn't, happened, it hasn't yet. happened yet. Not in my life, not in your life, not in the world. So so the future tenses there, da- David, are absolutely deliberate and important. They are, in fact, and I haven't said this word yet, so now I feel better. Eschatological. That's right. They okay. are <laughs> absolutely right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. and that invites us to a certain kind of living. Our eyes are on Christ now because the reign of heaven is is present now, but also on Christ when he comes again and will inherit the earth, which I think he means.
0: Okay. So, so we talked a little bit about the inductive discovery and kind of the, the care and the, and the way Jesus did that. I think another area where one could talk about inductive discovery would be the parables, right? That those are and you're going to have, I think, there's about 12 different Sundays where you have parables. It's, in a, lot the parables. it's a lot of parables. Right, yes, it's Lots. a lot of parables. Yeah. So maybe it'd be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time talking about parables, preaching parables, how they function in Matthew. Yeah. I don't know.
2: First of all, the parables are always challenging. Um, but but they're wonderful, too, because they open all kinds of doors for thinking about the gospel. And, you know, we talked about the fact that that Matthew is kind of, always talking about the unexpected or the the surprise that the gospel proposes. You know, the surprise that you would have five women in a genealogy who don't really belong there or don't seem to belong there or the surprise of the magi coming. Those kind of surprises are encapsulated in the parables too. The the kinds of things that you just would never expect. Like a king who would forgive an enormous debt. And then it's kind of surprising that the guy doesn't get it. You know, he goes out and throttles his neighbor because he's got, you know, owes him a couple bucks, you yeah, know, right, and right. Um, how the kingdom works, you know, and it's just, um, the parables are great in terms of opening doors, you know, they right. it's interesting, the, 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 the Guineans in Pigeon called parables, talk bocus, talk in a box. And I always love that, you know, because it's like you've got to open the box and see what comes out, you know. Oh, and, interesting. Oh, That's the know. picture. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and see, that I think that's right, because, the, and, uh, and Jim Vells in his hermeneutics text, our colleague, he talks, of, uh, and, he, and he says this is a rough-and-ready distinction, but there's, uh, most of Jesus' parables are explicitly about the reign of God or the kingdom of heaven or however that in, is introduced. And he says those parables are especially, uh, have as their tent uh, to reveal the way God is at work in the world or the way God will be at work. So again, they're, they're not, most, mostly they're not sort of, okay, now I should do something. But they're actually trying to reveal the unexpected ways of God. Now, when that revelation occurs, it can have different impacts, you know, and you can preach it in a different way.
0: So, so I guess one way of looking at the parables would be to say that they are a revelation yes. of the surprising Absolutely. work of the kingdom of God.
1: Absolutely, right.
0: Okay. So, one of the things about the parables, then, is that they are a surprising revelation of the reign of God.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the parable of the sower, actually, where, although you read this in commentaries, the claim is that this reflects ancient Palestinian farming techniques or something. There's no evidence for that, and when you think about it, it's absurd. You know, ancient Palestinian farmers were not stupid. Oh, there's a path. I'm not going to go throw seed over there. <laughs> see? Oh, there's a bunch of rocks sticking up through the ground. I'm not going to throw it. But I, the, I think the,
2: seed was just too valuable. Well, exactly. I mean, exactly. They, they saved seed for a whole year. You're careful avoided where you eating put it. it. So that they'd have something to sow. Well, exactly. you're not going to sow it in a place where rocks are underneath. Exactly.
1: We had thorns there last year. See? But see, that's the point. It's with God. And specifically with Jesus, who is sowing the word of the reign of God, he just flings it everywhere.
0: And so that extravagance would be offensive at the level of the story of exactly. a it's sower doing unexpected. something like that. Exactly. Right. Unexpected. unexpected. Yeah.
1: And as the story progresses, you know what? It's not even a very good idea because most of it never comes up. Right. Three, most of it, of it, it never bears fruit. Now, unexpectedly, the part that does come up, pretty spectacular yield
2: probably more than anyone would have expected in those days. Let the one who has ears to hear hear.
1: Yeah, <laughs> see, yeah. isn't that great? Again, it's yeah. revealing. Yeah. It's, it's uh, what was it, uh, uh, words in a box? Or yeah, talk in a box. Yeah, talk, talk in a box. box, see? You open the box and, and even right. though we've heard it before, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the theological core is, a, is, is the surprising message about how God has decided to work in the world yeah. in
0: Jesus. So, so if that's how they work, what are ways that we could work to kind of mess that up as preachers? I mean, yeah. what are some of the things we could do to make it harder for the hearers? Well, if you take that parable, for example, I'm sure, I've done this, I'm sure,
2: early in my preaching ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, spend more time talking about the soil. Which kind of soil do you want to be? Right. As if that were the clue to how to get into the parable. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's not going to be very profitable for people because everybody wants to be good soil. Right. But how do I get there? You know? yeah. And as if, if this was up to us, instead of, no, this is just the ex- unexpected surprise of how God works right. and what the power of the Word, that's really where the focus is, on right. the power of that seed.
1: It's often said, and it's wrong to say, they only have one point of comparison. That's simply silly. Okay? But they do have one central message. Mm -hmm. And see, if you miss, if you don't have a firm grip on that message, you can go off. Then you can distort it. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, the the wheat and the tares, you know, the next parable in chapter 3, I've heard it preached uh, as if, uh, uh, almost as an evangelism sermon. That is, what God really wants to do is He wants to turn weeds, tares into into wheat. Uh, It's not in the story right? See, but that when you do that you've lost a handle on what's the central surprise because I think you could say that there is a central surprise or a central theme and then you have to cautiously and carefully relate the smaller parts to that and not lose sight because it's so easy oh this reminds me of this locus of Christian doctrine you know and away you go so so I think you have to slow down and make sure you have kind of a firm grip of what's going on in the context with this parable and then you can sort of expand from there it it's, would
2: prevent you from going off into a direction that's really not really a part what the parable is what's to reveal
1: it's supposed to re- that's exactly right It's supposed to reveal so it's, it's very you have to be cautious you have to be focused
0: now these uh, these parables arise at different times in jesus's ministry that's important too and how i mean why is, is it does it make a difference where we are when the parables are being said? The themes that are coming out well, certainly the ones that we're going to encounter, you know, in the passion narrative or in the latter
2: part—they're—they're they're much more direct. The people who hear them know he's talking about conflict, them. The conflict. Conflict is, conflict, right? the, yeah, the parables have conflict right in them, you know, and uh, the judgment is, is much stronger. What will this king do then? He will destroy those. And, and so,
0: yeah, and they tend to end on that judgment too, don't they? Oh uh, yes, yes, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit. Some, <laughs> of the, some of them do. That's right. <laughs> that's right.
2: But then Have the parable. Nice the, yeah, then the parables <laughs> yeah, that come. This in that. is the gospel of the Lord, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You always yeah. love to say that after that, right? I know. Yeah, yeah, right. But right. the parables, of course, that come in the the, s-, the larger central section are, yeah. are revealing who Jesus is, how the kingdom operates, how yeah. it works, yeah. and the incredible nature of, of grace.
1: Very often, yeah, and in the face of opposition, like thirteen is the big parables chapter, and and it's not going very well with the reign of God. I mean, they've decided to kill Jesus. The Pharise- some Pharisees in Galilee now in twelve fourteen decided to kill him. His own family doesn't believe in him. You know, after the parables chapter, John the Baptist gets his head chopped off. So again, this is part of the surprising revelation: is that it's it's not going well. Is God? Has he lost control? Does he know what he's doing? Well, actually, he does. Somebody sowing weeds in the wheat, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or like starting with it. Why would you start with a mustard seed? It's the smallest of all the yeah. garden plants. So, again, it, it, when you place the parables in their narrative context, it actually can help you to sharpen. Now,
0: you know, if, if I remember correctly, Matthew references Psalm 78 yes. when he begins that terrible chapter or something. It's or kind some of in, point, the in the middle. Right, right in the he middle when he moves uh, into the house. Right. And he says, in order to fulfill. Right. I will utter things hidden, hidden from sense. the foundation of the world. Right. And, right. and when right. I look at Psalm 78, right. it seems that the content of that Psalm has to do with kind of the history of salvation working yes. itself out. Yes. Stuff that people in the world would see, would know, but if they didn't believe, they wouldn't get it. Right. So it's kind of it, it's stuff that's very close to you yes. but it's hidden. Yes. Because yes. this is the reign of God and it's right. a mystery. Right. And so in a sense is Jesus kind of doing the same thing? No, no yeah. I I,
1: okay. I yeah, let's see. Let me try to say it better. Nope, can't. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> okay, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And and again that so again so so then how do you apply that? I mean right. then, but see once you have a firm grasp on that sort of central move Mm-hmm. Then you say, okay, now here's I'm um, here. I am at Wrath of God Lutheran Church. Now, mm-hmm. how can I apply <laughs> that? And then your creativity can begin to flow, as long as you keep, you know, a firm hold on that central theme. And mm-hmm. and you know, some of the parts are significant as well. Part of the difficulty is knowing how many of the details of the parable are significant. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 But but yeah. Then you apply it as you know God leads you as the pastor of that yeah. congregation. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's preacher. always it's always struck me as odd. I'll just it this way. Um, yeah. In homiletical literature, there's a great love for parables. Yes. We, we use the fact that Jesus preached in parables uh-huh. to justify anything, yeah, I and mean, right. just basically anything from the pulpit, because Jesus did this. And yeah. It's yeah. always struck me as odd that when you get to the Apostle Paul, there's no parables. There's no parable, right. When, when, and it's almost as if this mystery that has been hidden... <laughs> Once it is revealed, that's what you proclaim. And the people are sent out to proclaim the mystery. And so for me, there can be a lot of creativity and fun with the parables, but if we lose sight of what we've been called to do, to reveal. which is preach right. what has been revealed in Jesus right. Christ, right. Right. then yeah. I don't think we're doing a service at all, and we probably shouldn't be lap, slapping Jesus' name on it and saying we're doing what he wants us to do. Well, we're exactly. not called to hide anything yeah. anymore. we right. Proclaim it from yeah. the housetops.
2: Yeah, yeah right. that's right. No, that's so, right. Yeah, that's So right. now, yeah. you know, like as you said very well, we have the clear revelation the mystery's been unfolded for right. us so we the to box it has anymore. been opened exactly. but we can delight we can delight, we can in, delight how in it jesus you know. helped people at the very beginning to understand the right. nature of the kingdom right. because the nature of the kingdom is still hidden right right you know right. it's i mean it's 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 visible it's there but we don't always see it right and the parables can maybe help us see that yeah. you know, the very idea discover that, it again yeah you know like the a farmer who who doesn't go out into his field and and scratch the surface every day to see whether the seed is growing. He knows it's growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He trusts it.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't even it. know how it's happening.
2: No, he doesn't even know how it happens. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's the blade and the ear and the full grain, right. you know, and, and that's the nature of the kingdom. Right. Because God is the one who's in control. He's, yeah, he's the king. Right.
1: That's right. Um, you know, ironically, the one place where you might uh, uh, follow the method of Jesus yeah. is if you're speaking to a bunch of unbelievers in a, in a situation of conflict. right? Because that's where Jesus is doing it. So if you're in a kind of a hostile environment mm-hmm. and you're called to be a spokesman for God, what you might actually do is mm-hmm. try to hide and reveal at the same time and then just see what happens. Right. But preaching from the pulpit right. of a Christian congregation, you don't mm-hmm. want to say, uh, Jesus taught in parables, <laughs> I think I will too. <laughs> Yeah, this is and they technically leave called bad.
0: Unclear or yeah.
1: said. No, no, I, no you're, you're right. It's no. it's uh, it sounds groovy at first, Dave, but it's not groovy. It's dumb.
0: Well, I mean, and isn't there something? Is is it in Matthew where Jesus does explain a few of the parables, and is that kind of a paradigm for what might have happened in his ministry? Well, he, he
1: explains everything to his disciples, right? So that so yeah. that.
0: The people who are gathered on Sunday morning are disciples,
1: are, be disciples. right? so, yeah. so, so we should explain it. No, exactly. That's right. right. Yeah. That's,
0: that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. but we don't want to lose the delight, as you were saying. Yeah. There, there can be a delight in discovering something once again. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Right.
1: And that's the challenge. And you said, David, these are very familiar stories. Right. Christians have you know, heard them for many years. So it is a sort of a practical challenge to how to invite people into this unexpected
0: world. Uh, when the parable is well known there's that ability to um, retell the parable with all dynamic equivalents so that oh, yeah. you're telling a story in the contemporary world Yeah, but the plot of the story follows the plot it of the functions parable. the same yeah. way. And so the people who know the parable yeah. have a delight in hearing it again but yeah. hearing it completely different. Right. Yeah. right. That's actually a very yeah. good point. Yeah. And so that's a fun I mean that's kind yeah. of a fun way of preaching right. the parables. Right. Um I think uh I think a relative of yours who was a student here did that once in chapel. He was oh. working with a yes. parable of the the fig tree that wasn't Producing and the, uh-huh. the owner of the oh, vineyard Luke, wanted to, right. right wanted to to uh, cut it down, and uh, he interceded and I think the student said something like in the, in the chapel sermon he said something like um, uh, had to go uh, a seminary student was not producing oh. you know fruit, okay. and then that was the only word that linked to the parable, and then he kind of went through the dean of students who was oh, saying yeah. we okay. should get rid of him, and then the other person was interceding for him, and so you Interesting. knew Interesting. you yeah. knew what was being preached and yet but there was a delight in hearing it in a different way yeah, again. yeah. yeah. it wasn
1: 't hiding right it was revealing and right. yeah yeah that 's good, I like that yeah
0: so this year uh, we're going to be having the opportunity to preach from Matthew, um, an opportunity to preach many of the teachings of Jesus from Matthew. But I think what I'm hearing is that uh, Jesus was teaching, but he was actually teaching something. (laughs) And the thing that he was teaching is perhaps most fully revealed in what he was doing in Matthew, uh, ending up giving his life for the sake of us all. Yeah, if the
1: message of the parables is surprising, that hardly anybody got it, well, by the time you get to the cross, it's shocking, mm-hmm, right. and nobody gets it. Right. And um, so yeah, it's all in service to the cross and the empty tomb. It's all in service to that Jesus, if I could say it that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you don't, you don't pluck the teaching out of the movement of Matthew that drives us
2: to... In fact, helping, having that in mind, that understanding in mind helps right. sharpen each of those individual texts. Absolutely, right. In terms of the way we provide yeah. them.
1: So it's a nice dynamic between the larger flow and the individual text. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you for taking yeah. time yeah. to sit and yeah, converse thanks. about Matthew. And Absolutely. Thank you for listening. I pray that this will be of service to you in your task of preaching.